Hey everyone, I'm Ashley Asti, and this is I'm Curious Podcast. Today we're talking about food, how food connects us and how we connect around food. Just think about all the ways we call on food, whether it's just throughout the day in our daily life or in moments of celebration, in moments of grief. Food is how we fuel ourselves, but it's so much more than that. Today we're going to look at food from a different lens, which is through the lens of food justice. Who has access to food? Who has the resources for healthy food? How does the production of food affect different people and different communities? So when we talk about food justice, we're also talking about things like racism and poverty, all these justice movements that intersect. I've been in the wellness industry for a while now, and I feel like it is my responsibility to not only have conversations about what I'm doing in the wellness industry, but more deeply to look at what role I'm playing and we're all playing in making sure that everyone has access to well-being, that this is not just for a few. When we talk about plant medicine or veganism, Eloisa, my guest today, is going to talk about this. Who has access to that? How are we working to make sure everyone can reach those resources too? My guest today is Eloisa Trinidad, who has so much knowledge and so much passion and feels deeply. She is a total liberation activist and an organizer focusing on animal rights and human rights. She's used her career in business development to work on campaigns for social good, such as the Economist Feeding the Future campaign, which aims to get consumers thinking more about environmentally sustainable approaches to food production and consumption by educating them on plant-based foods, on the reduction of plastic waste and the reduction of food waste. She's the co-founder of the animal liberation group Vegan Activist Alliance, and she serves on the board of directors at Plant Powered Metro New York. And we're going to touch on this today. She is the lead organizer at Chili's on Wheels, where she focuses on making veganism accessible to communities in need. So here we go. Let's jump in. Eloisa, I am truly honored to have you here offering your time and your wisdom to me. One of the things that I already love about you is the, from what I can see is you feel the world so deeply and you respond to it. So not only are you uh, feeling so in tune with what's going on in the world, but you actually do the work to create change. And I, I really appreciate that compassion. And one of the things that you had written to me when I first reached out to see if you'd be a guest on this podcast, you said, food unites us as much as water and as much as love. So to begin, can you expand on that a little bit? So, you know, I think that we've gotten so away from understanding that we're all connected and we all share this earth, we all share this planet. And those are the things that sustain us. I mean, literally, figuratively, in any way that we can think of, um, you know, food and water, all of all of the beings here, the plants, I mean, that's exactly what we need as sustenance. And so, you know, from a physical standpoint, it's what's unite us. I mean, and even from a sort of um, collective consciousness, it, it unites us as well. So, you know, I believe that we're, we're not different than one another. Um, we all need similar things, whether that be community, love, shelter, food, water. And those are the things that make us, you know, 
sort of deal with this this planet that at times not the planet itself but this challenging times that can be difficult and can be challenging um, for us to navigate and I think when we get back to those basics of exactly um, what it what it is that we all need on the most basic basic level um, we understand that and it, and it brings us together um, I'm getting a little like emotional because I'm just thinking thinking about it and, and it's hard for me to really put it into words um, so I might get a little long-winded um, but yeah I mean when you go outside and you look at a tree or you look at a person and, and they're drinking whether it's water whether it's juice whether it's eating and, and you see a little bird doing the same thing. Um, you know, you see a tree kind of absorbing the sun and we do as well. Um, you know, you, you see it as such a picture, you know, and we're, we're all connected and it, it unites us. I mean, when we talk about food and we sit down with one another and we're in community and we're sharing stories, um, you know, we do that as well. Other beings do it as well. A lot of times, you know, where they're in their community and they're looking for food. And so the search for food and also how it brings us together as a community and especially for, you know, human animals and sharing stories. I think we have such a connection there besides the physical sustenance, you know, and, um, understanding how vital um, water is in this life. I mean, we cannot exist without water. Nothing on this planet can exist without water. And, you know, it's, it's challenging for me to realize that we're in, in a system that privatizes water, that privatizes food to the point where it is a way to control people. Um, it's a way to keep people oppressed um, in, you know, there are corporations and governments who use this and, and it has been done for, for centuries and it has been done forever um, as, as gatekeeping. You know, what can you do on this planet as any being, whether human or non-human, if you don't have access to the most vital basic things that you need to survive, right? Um, and so when we look at that and we look at it from a survival perspective, um, we understand how much it is that... Um, it, that unifies us. Yeah, I think you're, um, you're talking about the feelings that might come up, and I think that's nothing to apologize for. I think so many of us have been taught to suppress that feeling, but you're actually really connecting to that um, and feeling the connection that we all have, and I think that makes you perfectly situated to advocate for justice and change, which is exactly what you're doing. To, to step back a little bit and just start getting into a little bit of the work that you do and, and kind of frame the conversation, I want to talk about access to healthy food. And so again, just to sort of set the scene for anyone listening, can you explain what a food desert is and what a food swamp is? Um, so there are a few terms in food justice. Um, one is food desert, one is food swamp, and one is food apartheid. Um, so I think the most widely used uh, term that people um, use right now is food desert because it's really the one that has been kind of pushed forward. But they all, they're all important and the, they all exist sort of a little bit differently. So for example, a food desert literally would be somewhere where you don't have access uh, to healthy foods. So if you have a community uh, that has to travel two hours to access healthy foods and doesn't have access, proper access to transportation, that is 
a food desert. Um, a food swamp is where you have a lot of food and is not healthy food. Um, and so I think a lot of times people get those two terms confused. Um, so you know, you have, let's say, and that happens a lot in New York City, where what we actually have are food swamps. So, so we have communities that have a lot of food and they're processed foods, um, they're junky foods. Um, and then, you know, you go perhaps you know, two miles outside of that community and you're finding like all these uh, perhaps green markets and, and things like that where people can purchase um, healthy foods. And, you know, in food apartheid, um, basically, you know, we're talking about the lack of availability of healthy food and in general, the system itself and, you know, the conditions that these communities uh, may be under uh, geographically and economically. And so while you may have, let's say, healthy food in your community, you may not have the funds to um, access those foods. So a lot of times you do have... Um, communities that live, let's say, in gentrified areas. So now the healthy food comes in, but you still have the people that live there not having access to this because, you know, perhaps uh, kale or organic produce is just too expensive for them to afford. Um, so when we talk about food apartheid, um, it's not just the lack of access, but, you know, the lack of funds to buy healthy foods as well. So you're pointing out that this is a very real thing, that this is not just something that like people don't have access to food in, you know, some other country, that this is happening like inside New York City, let's say. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I, when I was doing, I mean, we're still doing pandemic relief um, with Chili Sun Wheels, but I remember speaking to a friend and he had been quarantining and I was just ex explaining to him how, you know, that pandemic has really uh, magnify the problem of, of food justice and in you know the inequities and inequalities that exist within our system and his response to me um, was but this is in Africa there's food here <laughs> and I said there is food here I mean in the world and I think we need to really keep this in mind there is enough food in the world to feed everyone and i'm talking about specifically you know plant-based food so there's an issue of distribution and access um and so when we already when we have people that are in poverty that's really the first issue as to why there isn't food access so i think a lot of times um there's a lot of myths about overpopulation and there not being enough um and that is actually not the case uh, but yeah, it happens right. It happens right uh, here. Like the um, students in New York City, um, an overwhelming majority um, get their food from school, and they're food insecure. Um, many of them may be housing insecure as well. Um, so this is a very real issue. It's an issue that happens right here in our city. It's an issue that happens in the U.S. Um, just for children alone, I think the number of food insecure children um, has gone up to 18 million in the U.S. during the pandemic. Wow. I want to piggyback on what you were talking about with access to plant food. So you're a lead organizer in New York City for Chili's on Wheels, um, which is a nonprofit committed to providing vegan or plant-based meals to those in need. Why does providing not just any food when there are, you know, 18 million children who are food insecure, uh, why, is it, why does providing plant-based food matter? 
So, I mean, as a vegan organization, you know, our belief is that all beings on the planet deserve to live and live in peace. And, you know, when we're talking about food justice, and I think this is a huge disconnect between organizations that, um, you know, they're, they're working on food justice, but they're working on food justice with a general belief of just, you know, uh, caloric intake and, and providing just food period and animals as food to people. And I mean, the research is there that, you know, animal products, you know, especially the way that we eat and consume animal bodies um, and to the extent that we do is not necessarily the healthiest way for people uh, to exist. And by minimizing or eliminating um, animal bodies in our diet, we're also, you know, minimizing our chances of getting, you know, heart disease, diabetes, cancer, and so many other um, issues, health issues. Um, they have even been linked to asthma, which actually is one of the biggest issues for children in marginalized communities in New York, um, is the prevalence of asthma that exists. Um, and so, you know, with introducing, um, and not exactly introducing, I mean, these are communities that are aware um, a lot of times of what is good. And so there's a misconception that they might not know. And I mean, not to take away the fact that there is a lot of addiction to processed foods because how the system is designed and how, you know, food is made um, is a lot cheaper. Uh, food that is processed is a lot less expensive than whole foods a lot of times. But when we go, you know, to these to these communities and we provide very basic staples. So I, I just want people to kind of understand that we're not just sitting there and providing beyond meat, you know. <laughs> we're talking about greens, we're talking about vegetables, fruit, um, rice, beans, uh, lentils, nuts, um, and people are really, really Really happy and they know uh, that these foods are better and they're healthier and they're also a lot of times more culturally relevant um, one of the issues within the New York City uh, system um, and whatever was developed in order to address the food insecurity that um, existed before but obviously was made worse by the economic downturn from the pandemic was that none of the food has been culturally relevant um, it's not um, plain products or products that, you know, people can actually cook. A lot of the times these communities already know how to cook. And what they want are, you know, the basic ingredients for them to make dinner. You know, they want fruit. And when you see someone that is just happy to receive um, oranges or apples, it's really heartbreaking. I had a, a mother in the Bronx who told me that she waits the entire week um, to save the oranges you know, they only give you one orange or one uh, fruit per lunch to save the oranges so she can make her children fresh orange juice. The fact that that's happening and these communities are not being brought into the dialogue is one of the biggest issues. So a lot of this food is actually ending up as food waste um, because the children don't want to eat it. Um, it comes frozen a lot of the times. It's not culturally relevant. And people don't feel that it's good food or that it's healthy food. And so we want to open the door, um, you know, to, to health in a way, you know what I mean? And to just, you know, keep the communities involved in the decisions instead of pushing whatever ideas or beliefs. And we've had, there's been some situations where somebody might be walking by 
and we're feeding, let's say, houseless individuals, and they're saying, you know, um, you're taking away a choice because you're only, only pro providing plant-based foods. And in actuality, um, we're so welcomed by this community, by the houseless community, because they see that we care about their well-being. They see that we're not just feeding them what's left over. Um, and they feel better because they might not trust animal products that are sitting out there. Um, and so sometimes we don't, we don't take into consideration that because somebody is in need, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not aware um, or they might not, or that they have ethical reasons as to why they might not want to consume animal bodies. I just want to highlight something that you said. I mean, there was a lot of good stuff in there, but talking about listening to the communities, like actually getting in, involved and letting them lead you in a sense of like what they need, I think is so important. I think so much when we hear charity work, it's often like uh, a lot of white people, wealthy white people, like pushing ideas on other people without actually tuning into what uh, is relevant uh, to the communities they're trying to serve. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting is when you talked about that story of that woman in the Bronx with the oranges. Uh, I, I, and I know we're going to talk about this a little bit later, and I don't know if it's entirely relevant, but because I do a lot of work with people who are incarcerated, I hear very similar stories about they like dream of the day they get released from prison that, so that they can have fruit. And I feel like what's happening in, in the communities that Chili's on Wheels is serving and in prisons is that we're perpetuating a cycle of um, illness or lack of health that, that goes along with intersections with racism and poverty. Uh, do you have anything you want to say about that? <laughs> well, the first thing I want to say is actually that, you know, the corporations that distribute the food to prisons are the same corporations that distribute the food to schools. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't know this. Um, and so that same lack of quality and lack of care that exists within prisons is how our children are pretty much treated with um, within our school system um, not just in New York, but, you know, nationwide. Um, and so that's why, you know, you see the similarities and the intersections are there, you know, um, it is, it is about a system that, you know, food is a way, and, and as I was saying before, food and water are ways, and, and the biggest ways in which you can control people. And so if you have a control of a food system where people are already marginalized and you keep providing them with food that is unhealthy or perhaps preventing them from having that access, and, you know, it goes back to policy, you know, what policies are being design in order to not keep these communities in mind. And so this is a form of racism. It is a form of marginalization. And a lot of times we see violence and when we see violence is very much in our face. So there's police brutality and we can't like basically, I mean, a lot of people deny it, but when you see it, you see that it's there. And what uh, the type of violence that a lot of people don't see is the violence that kind of is in the background that is systemic um that it isn't necessarily killing somebody right away but by the policies that are implemented um is killing people slow slower in also in higher numbers though and so we see people who are um food insecure so they're they're suffering in that moment because they might not have food and they might have to make decisions of whether do I pay the rent and keep my apartment or do I buy food to eat? Um, that's a decision that nobody would should ever, ever have to make. Um, 
And so we cannot separate, uh, you know, we don't live in any type of vacuum. We cannot separate food justice from, you know, racism and, you know, and also colonization. Um, you know, we're talking about a history of where, you know, slaves are not allowed to, to farm for themselves and own land. Um, because obviously when you farm for yourself and you grow food, you know, there's a level of independence that exists in that you don't need somebody else. You don't need to depend on anyone else. And even currently you see uh, farmers that are, you know, farmers of color um, that do not get the same praise in the media as, as their white counterparts um, that don't have access to the same level of funding. And it continues from the very beginning of growing food to the food that ends up on your plate. Um, and we see it across the board. We see you know, migrant workers who have absolutely no rights, uh, basically, and who experience extreme marginalization. So food justice doesn't just um, mean access to food. It really does mean labor rights. It, it means, you know, the fact that there's a racist system in place that we have to dismantle as well. That's a, a great segue because I had wanted to talk about factory farms um, and sort of the what you're saying, these collateral consequences or systemic consequences that go beyond access to healthy food or the resources to get healthy food. So for anyone who doesn't know, can you first tell what, explain a little bit what a factory farm is and then perhaps how factory farms affect the communities that they're located in? Um, so there, there are two things. So we have factory farms, which are basically uh, the larger, um, you know, intensive animal farming operations. So very industrial production of meat. Um, so you're talking about the factory farms, these are, these are the, the production that actually supplies the entire country or sometimes globally. So these are very, very big operations. So in these type, and then you have slaughterhouses, which tend to be smaller and a lot of times individually owned, but they get their animals from factory farms. So it's all very connected. Okay. Uh, so within factory farms, you know, you're talking about waste uh, that comes from the animals. Um, and the communities that live within, you know, near these factory farms experience um, really high levels of um, respiratory issues, you know, as far as other health conditions like skin conditions, they experience lack of water, um, so their water is contaminated. So we have water contamination as well as air um, pollution. And so these communities tend to be um, black, indigenous, and people of color, or extremely poor um, white people who live within these communities. Um, the slaughterhouses, which we have about 85 here in New York, are also situated in communities that are marginalized, in communities of color. Now, a lot of the people in the community may buy um, animals at these slaughterhouses because they're not aware that they're coming from a factory farm. They think that they're, you know, getting these locally raised, uh, you know, grass-fed animals. But once you talk to people in the community and you let them know that these slaughterhouses are not located on Park Avenue, they're not on the Upper East Side, uh, they're not in Tribeca, they actually start sort of changing their beliefs and they start to realize, wait a minute, like why is this in my community? And a lot of people in the community 
um, don't want the slaughterhouses there. So, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to a slaughterhouse, but the smell is absolutely atrocious. There's runoff on the street and, um, you know, fecal matter from these animals. Sometimes they're located right next to schools. We have some in New York City that are located right next to the school. So just imagine, you know, being a child and walking by these slaughterhouses on your way to school. Um, and within, within those two, whether it's, you know, intensive animal factory farming or slaughterhouses, what you find is that the people who are still marginalized beyond the community uh, where these are located are people who either don't have uh, documentation uh, to be here in the U.S., so foreign nationals, and, and people of color. Um, so their labor rights are constantly violated. Um, there was a situation with one factory farm where the workers had to wear diapers, <laughs> you know, in order to use the restroom um, because of the demand of working. You have to work and you have to, you know, complete certain tasks within an incredible short amount of time. So when you talk about some of these migrant workers or sort of this labor trafficking, is this because these people don't have citizenship, so therefore in order to survive in this country, they have to take whatever job they can get, like they don't have choice? Right. I mean, a lot of people would debate, debate me on that, you know, especially um, animal rights activists um, who, you know, have a different opinion. But from me actually doing some work with slaughterhouse workers, I have seen that. Obviously, in any population, you have, you're going to have people who enjoy hurting others, right? That, that exists within the general population. But there is labor trafficking. So labor trafficking is, you know, the highest within, within the human trafficking spectrum. And I think a lot of people think of trafficking, they think of sex trafficking, which obviously is also a huge problem. But labor trafficking, again, affects the same people um, and the people who are trafficked here for labor tend to be black, indigenous and people of color. Um, when people are trafficked, it's not, you know, the idea that somebody was put in a van and taken somewhere um, is not always the case. And, and I think we have this as an idea in our mind, perhaps from films and movies and even the news, because that's what they, they put out there, you know, when um, a lot of times they're reporting trafficking. Um, and so, you know, what we have a lot of times is somebody who perhaps might be undocumented and somebody tells them about a job. They might show up to the job and have absolutely no idea what they're showing up for. And then they're presented with a choice, you know, if you can call it a choice of do you survive and eat and do this work that perhaps you've never done before that can lead to PTSD and substance abuse and higher rates of domestic violence, right? Because it is a violent type of job. I mean, you are, you are um, experiencing violence, you're perpetrating violence, and that comes along, you know, with certain other psychological problems, right? We don't only experience violence when it's inflicted on us, but if we're inflicting violence on another without wanting to do it, that leads to um, complete, um, a complex traumatic uh, stress disorder. Um, and so that's how we see a lot of this um, labor trafficking happening where, you know, specifically here in the U.S. where you might not know that this is exactly what you're signing up for and then you are in that situation or if they, you know, a person came here illegally and they have to pay off the person 
who brought them here, um, they don't, they might not have another choice. It's either, you know, you pay us, so, you know, we kill your family in the country that you're from. I think I was, I, I was surprised when I had first heard you talk about the effects of um, the communities where there's a slaughterhouse and with the workers with higher instances of PTSD and substance abuse and domestic violence. And at the same time, as much as I didn't know that information and it was horrifying, it was also not shocking um, to hear. Like it, it just, it made a lot of sense, like you said, because these people are involved in, in violent acts every day for their job. Which again, it's, it's going to, I keep coming back to this because there are a bunch of similarities. And when you're talking about slaughterhouses in New York City are not in Tribeca or different, uh, more affluent areas. And I, I, again, in my work with prison, I see that all the time. I, I, I grew up on Long Island in New York, and I didn't even know that there were jails and prisons on Long Island or in New York because I grew up in a more like upper middle class area and I never drove like drove past one on the way to school. My parents didn't go past one on the way of work, but they're there because they're just in certain communities. Um, and I, I bring this up because you had sent me a message and you'd said that Chili's on Wheels hosts a Friendsgiving event every year um, for Thanksgiving. And you had mentioned that, you know, when you gather together for that event, that people also gather to write letters to people are, who are incarcerated. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? And just speaking of crime, you know, when there's a slaughterhouse in, that is placed within a neighborhood or community, the crime rate goes up by about uh, 22%. Wow. And so, you know, we can see in, within that how everything really is connected. I mean, when people are suffering these psychological issues because they're inflicting uh, pain and trauma on another, you know, that's one of the ways that that expresses itself is by the crime rate going up. So Chili Stone Wheels, um, obviously we believe in, in restorative justice. Um, we believe that currently the uh, prison complex, which is very much for profit um, in this country, um, should be abolished in the way that it exists. And when we gather for our big, um, you know, I hate to call it Thanksgiving because I guess <laughs> that's that holiday, but Friendsgiving yeah. or, or that day, um, we also beyond, you know, feeding people food and having clothing and other items available for them, um, we get together and we write letters and cards. We actually, there, there's kids that do it. We have one young girl and she's actually sort of the leader and they draw and they are mailed to people who are in prison, um, you know, because community, we're all part of this community, we're all part of humanity, and there's a lot of people in prison who don't belong there, who, you know, just by the fact that, and who are nonviolent criminals, you know, and this system is not designed for rehabilitation, it is designed to keep people in prison, so others can make a profit. And so keeping that in mind, you know, um, these people might be disconnected from family, might not have family, and, and the smallest act of kindness that we can do is send them a card, you know, and, and send them something that says, hey, you know, you're still here, and we know that you are, and we acknowledge you, um, and we understand that this system is rigged, and it isn't in your favor, um, and so that's one of the things that is, is done every year, and, you know, by implementing this, through Chili Stone Wheels, you know, the youth and the children understand that this system is not just, oh, there's a bad guy there and there's a good guy there and, and the police are the good guys and the system is the good guy. You know, there's, there's a complexity um, here. And so 
you know, teaching children empathy extends just beyond be nice to a doggy or be nice to your next door neighbor. Sometimes there are people who we might judge because they have ended up in places um, that we may deem less than um, by society. But within those places, there exist so many different stories. And some of those stories are very heartbreaking. I was so moved when you told me that um, and just the, the awareness that your organization has uh, of the intersection between the food justice movement and criminal justice reform. I remember a few years ago when I first started writing to people who are incarcerated, I was writing to a woman named Brittany who was in her late 20s. And at the time she had been in solitary confinement for four years. Um, she was in a cell, you know, 23 hours a day without a window. And I would tell her that I would, one of the things I love to do every summer is I would go up with my family to visit Woodstock Farm Sanctuary, um, where they rescue neglected and abused farm animals. And so when I tell her about that, she would tell me how much she loves animals. And so I started sending her photos of the animals from my visits there. And she was so you know, grateful for that uh, and just to have that sense of life and connection to something she loves that she'd start hanging the photos on her wall and, and talking about how important that was for her and for her mental health. And so I don't know why I just decided to reach out to Woodstock Farm Sanctuary and just let them know that their work is touching more than the people that just get to go visit their premises, but it's reaching, you know, people like Brittany who is incarcerated. Um, and what I was surprised by now I'm not at the time I was that the person who wrote me back on their staff started talking about the origins of solitary confinement and the connection between the prison system and the factory farm system yeah. and what we're doing to human animals and, and animals. Um, I, don't, I don't know, that's not really a question in there. If you have anything to add, you can. If not, if not we can move on. I mean, I, I always have a lot to add, I feel. <laughs> Stop me whenever you can, because I, I can be very long-winded. But you know, when you look at the industrial prison complex, and you look at factory farms, you know, you're talking about the commodification of, of bodies. And that's exactly what is going on. And, and whether it's a human or a non-human animal, it is a system for profit. It is a system that doesn't take into account uh, the existence of a being in its entirety. Um, and, and we see that. And so, you know, the animals that are in factory farms, I mean, they get, basically, they're, they're putting solitary confinement from, from the very beginning. So you have a, a baby who was born from a cow and is completely pulled away from, from their mother and becomes a product. And so there is no chance at life. There is no chance at connection. And when you look at the prison complex, it is exactly the same, you know, you become a number, you are now treated as not a being, but just a product, whether that means that you're a damaged product or a product that can be used for profit. Um, and so there are so many similarities there. And again, you know, it's, it's within the system that we're under. And when you look at the prison complex and you see who is incarcerated, you're talking about an overwhelming majority of people who are of the global majority or otherwise called people of color. Um, and that goes back to the, you know, commodification of brown and black bodies. You know, it goes back to the fact that when we had police really um, established in this country, they were chasing slaves that were running away, you know, because slaves running away meant a loss of profit. Um, and, and so we still see that today.
I could listen to you talk about all of this um, for a long time. So again, no need to apologize there. And I, there is so much more that I could ask you, but I'm just going to finish with one more question. One of the things that I've noticed, so I, I, a few years ago, I had started an organic skincare line and I myself became a, a vegan plant-based eater and getting into that world or that <laughs> wellness world, it started, I started seeing almost like the performative nature of veganism on social media. So a lot of um, wealthy women telling other women how to eat or what to eat or how to regulate their bodies. And it seemed like self-care became this thing about uh, luxu luxurious face masks and, and things that were out of touch. When I think about self-care, more of the origins of it, I'm thinking about someone like Audre Lorde, um, who is a self-described, self she said she's a, a black lesbian mother warrior poet. And when she talked about self-care, she said, caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is an act of self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare. Because I think it was bold for someone like her as this black mother, lesbian warrior poet to declare that she deserves to exist. She deserves to take up space. And, and that was self-care. Do you want to touch on it all, um, how that has shifted or again with that, the Instagram generation or how it's sort of lost touch with its roots? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, you know, I just like to say that the, the wellness industry has been completely hijacked and is now a multi-billion dollar industry that sort of, you know, has gatekeepers, you know, and, and self-care and wellness should never have gatekeepers. Um, you know, you're talking about from yoga to um, just even plant-based foods, you know, it, like you said, it, be, it has become this luxury item um, for people and you have people from very privileged backgrounds telling others, well, just do this, not taking into consideration that not everyone has a budget and that everyone has access to these things. And, you know, recently, um, and, I, and I see that throughout, um, it's very performative and one of the things that I have issues with within this industry is that so many ideas are taken from communities that are not European, you know, descending communities or anything like that. So not only are, you know, these gatekeepers kind of extracting these ideas of self-care, they're also then turn it in, into such a business and then gatekeeping, um, which is really, really one angering and just two, very disappointing. And, you know, back to what um, Audrey said, which obviously um, she's amazing and was amazing and um, I, I love her. It is very true. So anytime that we find joy, anytime that we care for ourselves, especially as black, indigenous of, of people of color, it is resistance. You know, we are surviving. And so recently, one of the things that happened with me, um, there were the Black Lives Matter protests happening and Kaporos was happening at the same time. And I was just completely exhausted. And I said, I have to make a decision. I cannot this week go to all of these protests, um, you know, for Brianna Taylor. And then at the same time, you know, do Kaporos. Like I, it's not going to be good for my well-being. And perhaps the way that I can give back is to really just be with the other non-human persons, you know, aka the animals. And that's what I did. And it was a real challenge in a way to make that decision. But finding joy is resistance. And um, and that is self-care, right? And so I think self-care has been really sort of minimalized to just, you know, you go 
to a spa day or perhaps you drink a smoothie. And when it is much deeper than that, I mean, you're talking about resting, uh, which is something that for all of us is so challenging to do within the system that we're under. You know, we've been taught that we have to every day, all day, really put something out. You know, we have to be competitive. We have to always constantly be fighting. Um, but that's extremely stressful and not something that is sustainable in the long term. And so, you know, obviously, yeah, I believe in that. And, and, and I agree with you that there is so much uh, performative wellness and activism um, online and in in this society in general um, and you know it's just I think a lot of times it's challenging for people of privilege whether that privilege privilege is granted to someone based on um, the socioeconomic um, status that they were born under whether that privilege is granted to someone based on their skin color whether that is granted based on the fact that, you know, someone is able-bodied or cisgendered or, you know, um, exists within the norm of, of what it, of, of the brain, right? They're not facing uh, perhaps, you know, something as a Down syndrome or even a mental health issue. Um, it is challenging for all of us to understand our privilege and the complexity that other people must navigate um, in order to exist in the world. And I think that the wellness, um, I don't want to say community, but basically the wellness industry, again, just like all the other parts of this system, is focused on profit, um, is focused on aligning themselves as an ally only when there is profit. It's, it's a huge problem. Um, I'm board member at Planned Power Metro New York, and when I first went to their meeting, before I was board member, um, and everybody was talking about wellness and lifestyle medicine and all of these things. I just got up in the meeting and said, what exactly are you doing to make this available to everyone? <laughs> you know, and that is always my question. You know, it's like we can talk about diversity and inclusion, but if we're actually not doing it, it's not happening. Um, and with that, we have to invite people in and listen to their ideas and understand that the approach is different and, and that's okay. Um, so for me, I mean, I, I, have a, I have a huge problem with the wellness industry themselves because of the gatekeeping and joy isn't just for people who are privileged. Joy is for everyone and, and joy is, you know, self-care and it's resistance to the system that is so exploitative that, that we're under, that all beings face. Hmm. <laughs> Finding joy is resistance, you said. I, I almost don't even have any other words after that. I kind of just want to breathe in everything that you said. Um, and I know what you said just now, and, and this whole conversation is going to reverberate with me for a while and continue to grow me and teach me um, so Eloisa, I am so grateful. Uh, I definitely want to continue this conversation and continue learning. Um, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much, Ashley. <laughs> it was great speaking with you. And I look forward to definitely, hopefully, um, you know, doing some work together. Eloisa is a reminder that peacemaking work is not just 
foreign diplomacy or ending wars, which of course is important, but it includes creating peace with the earth, honoring the earth, honoring the companion creatures, the animals that roam the earth with us. Peacemaking work includes understanding where our food comes from and reimagining the criminal legal system. I encourage you to check out Chilies on Wheels. I'm going to have links in the show notes to Chilies on Wheels and where you can connect with Eloisa. Thank you for listening, and let's continue to advocate for peace and change together.